All right, how are we? You good? You look good. All right. We are in the second week of this series called I See In You, and that's a very creative title of, of saying a statement that means I see in you, right? It's, it's us saying we see something in you, and the reason why it's I see is because if you said S, we I S in you, that's just weird, right? And so what we're saying is we see something in you, and we're talking about leadership development. So this is a series on leadership. And the reason why is because two things. One, everything rises and falls on leadership. Everything rises and falls in leadership or on leadership. So in your marriage, in your place of business or your work or your parenting, all that is about leadership fundamentally. And secondly, the reason why we're doing this series is because since that's true, leadership development is one of our core five objectives that we are working to accomplish as a part of the Multiply Initiative, as a part of our goal to multiply at every level, to multiply disciples, to multiply artists, to multiply leaders so we can multiply campuses and churches. And so this is one of the five objectives that we've been working on talking about over this last year that we want to see accomplished. And so this is the second week of this series. We're going to jump in today. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 9. All right, we're going to go New Testament now. Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at the last part of the chapter and then go into Matthew chapter 10 as well. And the reason why we're going to go here is I kind of alluded to it some last week is we're going to see how Jesus did leadership. Jesus arguably is the greatest leader who's ever lived on the planet. Because when you look at his life and ministry and leadership, he was only in ministry, quote unquote, or in leadership for three years. Yet he started a revolution, and here we are today still talking about him, still a part of what he's doing. And so obviously Jesus, yes and amen, is our savior, but he's also our example. And so we're going to look at what he did, some specific things that he did, and how us as a church want to mirror those or do exactly how he did it so we can see the same type of revolution, which I just love because that's our name, all right? So let's pray, ask God to bless our time together, then we'll jump into the text. Father, again, as always, we just want to stop and recognize our dependence upon you, that what we do here um, as a church, whether it be preaching or loving or leading, is fundamentally a supernatural thing, that our best laid plans or our strategies or whatever it is that, that we think is best to do, um, God, all of it is dependent upon your Holy Spirit um, drawing people to yourself. And so, God, we don't want to take another step without recognizing that. We don't want to make another move or waste another minute without recognizing the fact that we are utterly dependent upon you. And so, God, now as we open up your word, we ask that you would open up our eyes and our ears to see the truth in it. God, help me by your spirit to, uh, to rightly preach the word. And then, God, I pray that it would have its intended effect, that you said it would, that it would not return void, that it would go out and transform us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 35, and then we'll go into Matthew chapter 10, and we'll end up in verse 4. And so Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, this is a rather, uh, I mean, I would say famous, but you probably have heard this verse before, but we're going to look at it in the context of what Jesus wants us to do as a church as far as leadership development is concerned. So let's go with verse 35, I'll read down to verse 38, and then we'll talk about it. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had what for them? Let's try that again. If you're new, all right, I like for you to call and response. Jasper as well. He had what for them? Compassion. Compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's stop and talk here for a second. The first thing that we see that Jesus did as far as leadership is concerned, as far as how he spent his time, how he utilized his life, is the first thing that he did, it says he went. He went into all the cities and villages proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And so when we think about what Jesus did, the first and foremost thing that he did was he went. He went out into the cities and the villages, and he did that so he could proclaim the good news. And so you see Jesus going out himself as a preacher, as a teacher, as interacting with people, healing people, setting people free, doing all of this. And so this is Jesus's kind of public ministry, if you will. But what I want to point out here is he did that because as he looked out at the people, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. I had you say the word. The word compassion, biblically speaking, is the concept of, of you feel in your gut. The, the, the idea, we talk a, a lot about heart today as far as emotions are concerned. And again, we know that the brain is the one who controls all that, but you feel it in other parts of your body. And, and biblically speaking, when they would feel something, they wouldn't feel it in their heart. They would talk about their bowels. That's where they would feel it. And we would say something like, you know, we got butterflies in our stomach. You're nervous, all that kind of stuff. That's when, when you have anxiety or you feel something deeply, it, it always upsets your stomach, right? And you're tense and all that kind of stuff. And so the concept here is that Jesus, when he saw the crowds, when he saw all the people, he had compassion. He literally felt it. He had a visceral, physical reaction in his gut, right? I mean, this concept of, of he felt their pain. And so I love that Jesus recognized as he was out there, or what really, a better way to say it is, what motivated him to get out there anyway is because they were helpless and harassed. You know, the shortest verse in the Bible, if you want to memorize a verse and feel better about yourself, is John 11, verse 35. It says, Jesus, anybody know? Wept. Jesus wept. I'll never forget memorizing that one as, as a new believer. I'm like, all right, I started, baby. I got it. But I want to connect that one to this one. If you were to create the second shortest verse in the Bible, not that you know, we would do that, but my point just being, it says here, and Jesus went. So I want to connect these two for you. Jesus went because Jesus wept. Jesus went because first and foremost, Jesus wept. Jesus wept because when he looked out and saw the people, he felt compassion for them. He felt deeply their struggles, their pain, their sin, they're not having somebody to lead them out. He said they were harassed and helpless. He felt that. Now, here's the idea of compassion. I, I want to read it to you because I think a lot of us misunderstand this word. 
Compassion, listen to this, involves so identifying with the situation of others that one is prepared to act for their benefit. This is why I'm connecting these two, Jesus wept and Jesus went. See, a lot of us and a lot of times we talk about compassion simply as a feeling. Whoa, whoa, feelings, right? I feel this for them. I feel sorry for them. Well, biblically speaking, that's not real compassion. That's just a feeling. Real compassion is you feel it and then you do something about it. You weep and then you went. You felt it and then you did something. And that's what I love about Jesus. He didn't just went, he wept. But the whole reason why he went is because he wept. He had compassion for them. This is the difference between just feeling and actually trying to alleviate the pain through which you're feeling. And this is why I think it's so important of, as believers to start here. If we're going to model our life after Jesus, we have to start with this fundamental understanding that Jesus didn't just weep. He went. He didn't just feel. He acted. And I think there's a lot of believers today that come to, to services and they just want to feel something. They want to feel it right in their bowels, in their gut. And like, oh, that was awesome. But then we don't leave. We don't. And I know this doesn't make good English. We don't went. We don't go. And so therefore, a lot of us, our spiritual life is a lot like eating Taco Bell. You're like, huh? You feel something when you eat Taco Bell, don't you? <laughs> right? I mean, like, oh, I feel that one. I never forget in college, 39 cent tacos on a Sunday, baby. I mean, I, $5, man, I would fill up on some tacos. You feel something in your bowels. Right? A lot of us are like that. We feel, but we don't act. And I just want to point out that what motivated Jesus' movement is he was moved. And I would even go so far as to say that's the whole reason why he came to earth in the first place. Because when he was in heaven, he heard our cries. And obviously the father knew and the son knew from before the foundation of the world that this was the plan. But what motivated them to do that plan is because we were harassed and helpless. We were harassed and helpless. Jesus couldn't just sit back and let that happen on his watch. And so he went. And the whole reason why he went is because he felt so I just want to point out this fact to you as far as us as believers, the goal is not just to feel something. The goal is not just to feel the Holy Spirit, although yes and amen, we want you to. I pray that the Holy Spirit moves in our midst today and fills us up and we feel that. But the whole reason why we want that to happen is so that you can be empowered to go out. That's what we see in Jesus. He went to all the cities, all the villages, proclaiming the good news. Why? Because he had compassion for them. He saw that they were harassed and helpless. And those two words, I think, are important to understand. Harassed. I mean, they were being beaten down. They were being conflicted. They were being tormented. And it would be one thing to be harassed 
and not helpless, if we were just harassed, but we weren't helpless to stop that and we could help ourselves and therefore we could alleviate the harassment. It'd be another thing as well that if we were helpless, but we currently weren't being harassed, we couldn't do anything about it. But at that point in time, no one was harassing us. But worst case scenario is when you're harassed and helpless. And that's how Jesus describes humanity. Jesus describes humanity. He's, he's looking out at the sea of humanity and he says they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that's an analogy that Jesus uses often and the Bible uses often. In fact, that's where the, the word pastor comes from. Because when you pastor somebody, it's, it's a shepherd pastoring a flock. And what a shepherd does is he helps or she helps the flock to get from where they are to where they need to be. And there's a certain protection involved in that. There's a certain process involved in that. Because we all know sheep are helpless. It's, it's one of those things when the Bible calls us a sheep, um, it wasn't a compliment. Right? Just this last week, we, I was driving to school to take my two kids to school, and there's this one place that we uh, turn often, this corner where there's a farm, and there's some sheep there. And, and we were stopped at the red light, you know, in the Atlanta traffic, and said, I said, look, there's some sheep. And, and my daughter, Natalie, she just loves animals, and she's like, oh, look, they're so cute. They're so awesome. I'm like, yeah, but they're so dumb. And, and my son, who is in the front seat, he's like, yeah, Natalie, those, those animals are, you know, I mean, look at them. They're just kind of helpless and they don't really know where to, there was like some over here eating and some over there eating. There were some eating where there wasn't even grass. Like it was like, I don't know what they're doing. And so then we had this whole conversation about sheep. It was a great conversation. I dropped the kids off. And then later in the day, I was going back around that same location. And in the afternoon, I noticed all the sheep were together. They were all together in this nice little, uh, you know, huddle, if you will, and they were moving in a direction. I'm like, wow. And then all of a sudden, this sheepdog comes out from around the corner. And this sheepdog was directing the sheep. And then there was the guy out there directing the sheepdog. And I was like, that is a great picture. Earlier in the morning, they were harassed and helpless, didn't even know where to eat grass. Now in the afternoon, same sheep now moving in the right direction. What was the difference? It wasn't in the sheep. The sheep didn't figure that one out. It was in the shepherd. It was in the leader behind them, directing them to where they needed to go. Why? Because they're harassed and helpless. They don't know where to go on their own. So Jesus uses this metaphor, this analogy, and it's a great one because he's talking about us being harassed and helpless. That's why he's here as a shepherd and he has compassion on them and he's here to do something about them being harassed and helpless. And then I love how he says this. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What Jesus is saying here is the problem ain't with the sheep. The problem is there's not enough people to lead them. There's not enough laborers. The harvest is plentiful. And here's why I love it. He refers to it as a harvest. He switches metaphors here. He's talking about sheep, now he's talking about harvest. And the concept of harvest is, you know, it's the yield. It's 
The result, it's when you plant something and then it comes up and you harvest it, you bring them in. And I love this concept, even though Jesus is using multiple metaphors here, he was saying, listen, the problem is there's not enough sheep. The problem is there's not enough leaders to bring them in. The problem in the world today is not the sheep. The problem in the world today is not the lost people. The problem in the world today is a lack of leaders to disciple them. In fact, that's my point. You might want to write it down. All right. There are more lost people than we have leaders to disciple them. There are more lost people than we have leaders to disciple them. Here's why I'm stressing this. When we as believers, if you are a believer, when we talk about the world today, I'm just going to go ahead and venture. You had some conversation this week about the world, about politics, about the state of affairs, whatever side of the aisle you're on, that this person did this, and if we could just get this person and all this kind of stuff. You had all these conversations about the state of humanity. And as believers, we're so hypocritical because we talk about that as if we're not a part of it, as if we're not in it. And we, we kind of like isolate ourselves that saying, hey, the problem is really out there. I always like to refer to it as those people. You have a those people in your life. It may be based on race. It may be based on, on ethnicity. It may be based on socioeconomic status. Those people. If there was just less of those people and more of these people, the world would be better. Can I just tell you, friends, that the problem with the world today is not lost people? I'm going to go a step further. The problem with the world today is not even sin. I'll go one step further. The problem in the world today is not even the devil. The problem in the world today is that the leaders in the church are doing nothing about the lostness. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. And why would I go so far as to say it's not lost people, it's not sin, it's not the devil? You want to know why? Because Jesus makes it clear. It's his harvest. It's his harvest. You know what that means? It's his world. They're his sheep. They might just be lost sheep right now, but they're his sheep. They're his people. This is his planet. This is his thing. And God is not in some cosmic battle with the devil. This is not yin yang, good versus evil, and sometimes good wins and sometimes evil wins. And God is just trying his very best. God's trying real hard. No. If you read the Bible, especially when Jesus was on the scene and he would walk into a place and there would be a demon possessed person. Just go back and read how that demon-possessed person, that demon within that person talked to Jesus. What are you doing here? It's not our appointed time yet. Would you throw us into the pigs? Don't throw us into the pit. Poor pigs, man. That was a lot of good bacon that got lost in that story, right? And so Jesus, yes, he throws them to the pigs. They go over. Why? Because the demons are subject to Jesus. God is not up there with the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, like, hey, what are we going to do about the devil? What are we going to do about sin? What are we going to do about this political party and this? Oh, my gosh, this is so much. God ain't sweating it. And here's why I'm stressing you, stressing this to you. 
That's your shepherd. You think God as a shepherd can't protect his sheep? But I'm going a step further. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus made it clear in another instance that he has more sheep that are not in this fold. So even lost people are his people and they just don't know it yet. So the problem is not lostness. The problem is not sin. The problem is not in the spiritual realm that somehow God is, you know, he's fighting hard and we're hoping he's going to win. No, the Bible says that when Jesus was resurrected, he put all the spiritual world on display and made a mockery of them. And now every knee, every tongue will bow before him. That includes Satan and the demons. So God is not in some epic battle. God is not like hoping that he can overcome all this stuff. God is not concerned about a leader rising up against him. God's biggest concern is about his leaders not going after his lost sheep. The problem, my friends, is not out there. Quit placing the blame on people out there. Why do you expect lost people to act any different than lost? The problem's not with the lost people, it's with the found people. And the found people forget that they used to be lost people, but somebody came out and got them and brought them in. And so if the found people would go back out to the lost people and bring them in to be a part of the found people, we would have less lost people, right? So, so Jesus clearly places the blame not on the harvest, but on the laborers. And it's his harvest. And here's why I'm stressing this to you. I want to give you so much confidence that when you go out into that lost world, you know these people belong to Jesus. They just don't know it yet. So you can move out with confidence and knowing that your God can overcome any resistance they have to him. They can overcome any resistance. Several years ago, I was on staff at a church in Texas, and we brought in Eugene Peterson, um, who wrote the message translation of the Bible. And, and we were having a conversation with him as a church and as a staff, and I'll never forget one of the things he said, because someone asked a question about non-Christians, and he said, you know, I don't like to call them non-Christians. I like to call them not yet Christians. And I thought, what a great thing to say. They're not non-Christians, because if they're a non-Christian, then I'm a Christian, and I can categorize them and then have nothing to do with them. But if they're a not yet Christian, then I have to see, hey, they're just not in yet. I need to go get them and bring them in. That's what Jesus said, which is why he does two specific things here. He says, first and foremost, pray. Why? Because bringing, bringing sheep in is a spiritual thing. You have to, it's his harvest. He's the father. He's the God. He is the one that's controlling all the spiritual realm. So you better pray to him. But notice what he says. He doesn't say pray that those lost will come in. He prays, pray that those found will go out. Somewhere along the way in church world, we thought if we just build buildings and had attractive enough programs that people would come in. And what I'm saying is we got to get back to the original intent of no, 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 no. It's okay to come in, but you got to understand something. You're being empowered and sent right back out. That's the goal of the church. The goal of the church to empower you and 
sends you right back out. That's what he said. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And that word sent out, literally the Greek word ekbalo, which means to throw out. We're praying for God to throw some of you out. Throw me out of the church? No, no, no. Just throw you out of your seat. And that's a whole different reason if we have to throw you out of the church. That's church discipline, and that needs to be done. But here's what I want you to understand. God never brought you in to keep you in. God brought you in to bring you in on his mission and sends you right back out, which is exactly what Jesus does in chapter 10. This is why I don't like chapter divisions. It makes it easy to read and memorize, but look at chapter 10, verse 1. It's a new chapter, but it's the same thought process. It's the same thing. And I love it. It starts with an and, a horrible way to start a chapter. But man, it's great theology. And he, this being Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. So here's what Jesus does. I love this. Jesus says, hey, guys, you need to pray for God to send out laborers into his harvest. The next verse, Jesus says, I'm sending you out. Prayers answered. You with me? I love this. So just imagine the disciples are like, Lord, send somebody out. Send them out, Lord. And Jesus is like, he told me it's you. <laughs> I love that. It's you. And then he says, he called them to him, gave them authority, and sent them out. Now, here's why this is so important. I say this often, and I think it bears to be repeated because I didn't grow up in church, and I can thank God for that to a certain degree, because I didn't learn Christianese. It's a Christian language, right, where people talk Christian. And one of the things that when I got saved, it was so confusing to me, and then through my middle school and high school years, I and especially college, people would ask me, when were you called? Or what is your calling? And I would always tell people, and you've heard me say this if you've been here. When I got saved, I thought everybody became a pastor. I didn't have a separate calling. When I got saved, very clearly, I said, okay, you're my father now. And, and, and my father was here a few weeks ago. He's a big man. He's shrunk a little bit in his older age, but he's still big. I just did what my father said growing up. I just did what my father said. It frustrated my mother, but, but I did what my father said. I didn't get in trouble, not because I was some good kid. I was afraid of my dad. So when I became a believer and I have a heavenly father now, guess what? He's got all the authority. So when I became a believer, very clearly, God, my life is yours. So this whole concept of like, I got a calling later in life to be a pastor was so foreign to me, and it's still foreign to me. And here's why. If we're not careful in church world, we create professionals and non-professionals. We create pastors and priests and bishops and apostles and all these people who got titles and are professionals in the church. And people are like, when did you get called? There's only one answer. When I got saved. Because when I got saved, listen, and I'm going to point this out. I got called to Jesus. Notice he said he called them to 
him. I want to be very clear with you about something. When you got saved, you got called. Now you say, well, hold on, hold on. I thought certain people were called. No, no, no. Calling is the wrong word. Gifting is the better word. Yeah, Paul says in Ephesians 4, he gave some to be apostles, evangelists, teachers, shepherds to equip the, work, the saints for the work of ministry. Understand, all are called. You're called. Just like I'm called. This is why it frustrates me. And I'm going to give you an example here. I'm not called to Revolution Church. I am not called to Canton, Georgia. And it frustrates me when pastors talk like that. I am called to Jesus. That's it. And I go wherever he sends me. Right now, it happens to be Canton, Georgia with Revolution Church. Listen, I hope it stays that way for the next few decades of my life. But here's the thing. I don't get to determine that because I'm not called to a place. I'm not called to a group of people. I'm called to a person, and his name's Jesus. And when I got called... I was saved, and now I go wherever he sends me. It's like, well, how do you know? How do you know where you're supposed to go? You listen to his voice. That's what Jesus said. My sheep know my voice. You see it in, in, in Paul. He has a vision. I need to go over to Macedonia. Was Paul called to Macedonia? No. Paul was called to Jesus. So here's my point. We need to do away with this language of calling of select people and get back to the heart of the gospel of saying, if you are saved, you are called to Jesus. And in your calling to Jesus, he has an assignment for you. And that assignment is very simple to go back out to which you came from and make disciples and bring them back in because they're his lost sheep. They just don't know their shepherd. That is your calling. Now, here's what I also love. Look at the next two verses. I love this. It says the names. The names. Now, we, we could just very easily, you know, quickly pass over this, but let's not. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, 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 and Matthew, the tax collectors. I still don't even know why he gifted me to do this, right? Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, we have Thad here on staff, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, wah, wah, right? You, you see these guys, you see these guys, and, and here's what I want to point out to you. We read this list now like, man, these were amazing, amazing apostles and leaders in the church world. Yeah, they are now, but they weren't then. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. James and John. Fisherman. Simon the zealot, the zealot was a part of a political party. Just think like congressman or senator. Matthew was a stinking tax collector. IRS. We, we look at these guys now and we say, man, they were such amazing people. Not when Jesus found them. They were regular people. And I don't have the verse here on the screen. I should have, but I'll read it to you. You can write it down as a reference. Acts 4.13 says this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, two of the guys in the list, and perceived, now listen to this, that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. My friends, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And that's a great preaching point, but we don't believe it. They were common, uneducated men. And I've said this before, but the Greek word there is idiotos. They were idiots. But they had been with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. See, not only does Jesus call you to himself, but he walks with you. And it's the withness of being with Jesus that empowers you for the work. So you can't do the work without the withness, but I want you to understand something. Anybody that's called to Jesus who's been saved has Jesus. So if the, listen, if the requirement is very simply being with Jesus, then don't you see how that now applies to all believers? That was the only requirement. Jesus told them, hey, come be with me and I'll make you fishers of men. Let me ask a question. Who did the making there? Jesus or Peter? Jesus. Go back and look at it. I will make you. I'll make you. So he took common, uneducated, ordinary men, and he just invited them to be with him. And it was the being with him that they were made. And then he left and sent them out. Just as a point of reference, look at Mark 3, verse 13 and 15. Very similar story, but I like how he says it. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him. There's that word again. Called to him. Now listen to this. Those whom he desired. Those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You know what I have never gotten over, and I pray to God that I never will get over? That Jesus called me to himself because he desired me. That word there, desire, means to want for a purpose. I got to be straight with you. It annoys me when people talk about having to do things for Jesus. I have to serve my wife. I have to make sure my kid's in church. I have to stay in extra service to serve. I have to come up here on Wednesday nights with those teenagers. I have to love my neighbor that I hate. The only thing you have to do, my friend, is die. Everything else is a get to. You get to love your wife. You get to raise your kids. They ain't your kids. It's his harvest. You get to hold a baby. You get to serve and rev kids. You get to be in the parking lot. You get to love your neighbor. You get to disciple some people. He don't need you. He wants you. He doesn't need you. You think God needs me? 
I just want to joke all the time. The Bible says that if we don't praise him, he'll have the rocks do it. One time he spoke through the mouth of a donkey and he's still doing that today. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. God didn't draft me on his team because I had so much to offer him. God drafted me on his team because I had nothing to offer him and he had everything to offer me and he called me to himself and empowered me with his spirit and gifted me to go out into the world. I don't have to do it at all. I get to. For whatever reason, Jesus in his scandalousness of a mind and process wanted me and you to join him in his mission of what he was doing in bringing his lost sheep in. My friends, if we would simply grasp and understand the power of that simple difference, he brought those guys in because he wanted them so that they could be with him so that he could send them out. And that word there, send, is literally the Greek word, apostello. It's where we get our English word, apostle. So apostle simply means sent one. But here's the problem we've made. We turn the word into a title. We've turned it into a noun, but it was always meant to be a verb. Literally, this is how it reads in the Greek. To be with him and he might apostle them. Send them out. Isn't that the church today? We've turned all these action verbs into nouns and titles. What you see very simply, Jesus does three things, three A's. He apprenticed them. He apostled them. When I type that into my program, it tries to correct it. We don't even have that as an English word. Like we don't even have it as a verb. That's a failure of understanding what he said. He didn't bring them in with him so he can give them titles. He brought them in with him so he could send them out. He apostled them. And the third A is he gave them authority. So he apprenticed them. He apostled them. And he bestowed authority upon them. And then he went to heaven. But yet we're still talking about him today. The problem is not the lost people. It's the lack of leaders. So here's why we're doing this series. Very simply. We'll get into this more in the next few weeks. We have a firm conviction here. That everything that we need. To reach those out there. Is already in here. Everything that we need to reach those out there is already in here. We have the Father, we have the Son, we have the Holy Spirit, <laughs> and we have you. Someone just has to recognize that in you. Someone has to come alongside you and say, Man, I see in you. I, I want to invite you in to be with me. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. And then we're going to send you out. We're going to apostle you. 
I'll give you a title or a name badge, but an action and give you the authority to do it. This is why I love what's happened in Jasper. There's some lost people in Pickens County. The problem was not there weren't any lost people there. The problem is there was a lack of leadership. So guess what? We apprenticed some people. We sent them out. It's going amazingly well there. But here's the cool part. Were they ready when we sent them out? No. Were the apostles ready when he sent them out? No. He still had to correct them. But it didn't stop him from doing it. Why? Because there's a second thing that we believe. You learn while doing. You learn while doing. God wants you to be with him so that you can become like him. And then he's going to send you out to do things that you don't feel prepared to do. But it's okay because he's with you. And he's given you authority to do it. And so as pastors and leaders and staff members, well, all we're saying is simply this. It is an incredible privilege. We get to apprentice you, apostle you, and give you authority to go out and disciple people into relationship with their shepherd who they don't know yet. And if we do that, we'll still be talking about Jesus 2,000 years from now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a privilege it is to preach your word. I know this is something by your grace I get to do. And God, I thank you for all the men and women in this house that you've invited in as well to be with you. We want to be good shepherds and apprentice them, disciple them, and then apostle them, send them, and give them authority. Because the goal is not to get everybody in here the goal is to get Jesus and everybody in here and then everybody out there. And so, God, I know that there are people right now listening and watching that don't know you. You preached and you also apostled. You preached to the masses and then you also apprenticed 12 guys to do the same. And so, God, I know there are people here that are not with you that have heard the message of this good news that you want them, that maybe they're your lost sheep and they just didn't even know that they had a shepherd that laid down his life for them. God, I pray right now you would overcome their resistance to you and save them. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus, your eyes have not been opened to see the truth about who he is and what he did. The greatest news in the world today is that God loved you so much that he sent his son to get you back because he desired you. 
And if you want to trust him today, be saved. Then I'm going to ask you to pray, not out loud, but repeat after me. And it goes like this. Say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. I ask you to save me, forgive me. I put my faith in you. I give you my life. Thank you for loving me. Now, if you just prayed that with me, again, nobody looking around or talking, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Thank you. We got men and women walking around, gonna put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. And then the second part of the response is always is simply this. There's a lot of you that you are with Jesus. But you're not living sent by Jesus. And what I'm praying for today is that God would break your heart and make you weep. Because you look out among your neighborhood, among your kids' friends, among the people you work with, and you weep because they are harassed and helpless. You know they don't know what they do. And we are praying for God to give you so much compassion on them that not only you'll feel something, but you'll be sent out as one to serve them. Father, would you send out laborers? Would you send out leaders into your harvest? The problem with the world today is not the lost people. It's a lack of leadership by your disciples who thought that the end goal was just them being brought in. No, the end goal is them living on mission and bringing others in. And the amazing thing is when we do that, we will have so much joy because we know our life exists for a purpose. And that purpose is introducing people to you. So God, I pray for that kind of revolution in our house. People, not only being drawn to you, but empowered by you, apprenticed by us, and sent out. Thank you for giving us the authority to do that. It's a privilege, and we love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.